Welcome to the Multifamily Hangout, your gateway into the vibrant world of multifamily living. Are you ready to join industry leaders exploring challenges, discovering solutions, and sharing invaluable wisdom? Our hosts, Adrian Danilla and Chris Moreno, will be your guides through these enriching conversations. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Multifamily Hangouts. Chris and I are super duper excited for the guests we have with us in the studio today. Before we go to the guests and the intros, I want to acknowledge our sponsors, our friends that are making this podcast possible. I want to extend a special shout out to our esteemed sponsor, Apartment Snapshot, their revolutionary platform, the first gamified performance and employee engagement tool designed explicitly for multifamily professionals is transforming the way we approach performance and employee engagement in this industry. I also want to thank our new sponsor, GPS Roof Leak Repair, for their help and for their partnership. With this being said, uh, I'm going to pa- pass it on to Chris. Chris, take it away and please uh, welcome our guest for today. Our guest today is a very renowned writer, uh, experienced operating officer with several companies. He's giving, he's a mentor, incredibly helpful with his time to others. I think about the way he shares verbally and the way he writes. It's definitely helped me, not just the way I think in this industry, but the way I think about life and about helping others, about legacy, and even how I think about each day. So um, without further ado, I want to welcome Mike Brewer to the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Wow. Thanks, uh, Chris. That was, I really appreciate those kind words and I, I will receive them. I'm not very good at doing that sort of thing, but I received that, uh, and really appreciate it. But thanks for having me, guys. I'm, uh, we're very much looking forward to this. And thanks for taking the time and everyone in the audience here. There's going to be a lot of questions coming through. I'd love to hear in your own words a little bit about your story. So how you got into multifamily and the career you've built so far. I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version. I got into the industry way back in 1995 or 1996 on the heels of starting a landscape company. And the landscape company is important because it introduced me to real estate brokers in my local town. And I was uh, prepping their lawns and doing various work for them to get their houses ready to sell. And one of the brokers asked me if I wanted to sell real estate. So I said, sure, I'll try that. And went to work for Remax Town & Country. Learned very quickly that I didn't like the piece and the of single family home sales, so I started buying assets. Um, accumulated like 11 uh, single family homes, and uh, met a girl, gave all the real estate to my parents, and actually went back to finish college at Texas Tech University and went to work as a leasing consultant in a traditional multi family building. Fast forward, I spent time in all of the positions in traditional multi family from leasing consultant all the way up to the most recently chief operating officer at Ratco Residential based here in Atlanta. So, 30 years. In the business, worked for privately held firms and also worked for equity residential in the publicly traded space. So it's been a rich career. Chris mentioned something that's very important to me personally, and that's legacy. How important is legacy for my brewer? What are you hoping to leave behind after your career in multifamily is over? I think the thing that is most important to me is that I I'm in a position now to give back to an industry that has given so much to me over the years. And if I'm remembered for anything, it is uh, it is just that, that at the appropriate time, after I gleaned a lot of skills, a lot of perspective, 
a lot of mentorship and coaching from just some incredible people in the industry that I turned around and gave that back to the up and coming generation. And my hope is that I've done that through sharing in videos, sharing in podcasts, sharing in blogs, in different medias. But uh, that would be what I'd want to be known for um, when I leave this great industry. When we're thinking a lot about the challenges that come up, you've probably seen uh, unheard of challenges. You've probably worn a lot of hats in different organizations. You know, as you're thinking about the balancing of these common challenges that we see and how you think about implementing new technology, what, what's your thought process? Like, do you have a, a process you'd like to go through? And then how do you overcome these challenges that you're thinking about with new technology? Yeah, technology is a big word as it relates to multifamily space. And I've, I've been around so long that I can really validate the remark that our industry has been behind forever. But I do think that that changed in the last couple of years. There was a real groundswell of activity as it relates to prop tech. I think it got maybe a little ahead of its skis or over its skis in that there was a lot of technology created to solve problems that we didn't necessarily have or weren't really all that important. So I invited a lot of those uh, startups onto my podcast um, so that I could get a real look under the hood, if you will, and try to understand the problems that they were trying to solve in our industry. But if I think about that in the context of normalization, I think it was really important. Uh, we had what we call the business case scenario in any technology that was going to be introduced into our organization. We ran it through the business case, uh, which included making sure that we put out an RFP so we knew precisely what problem we were trying to solve. We invited the appropriate vendors or supplier partners to the table uh, and allowed them to pitch their opportunities to us. And then we thought through everything from change management to implementation to integration. So the business case gave cause for all those questions to be asked and uh, answered before we actually implemented anything. But I think process is important when you're you're introducing anything into an organization because it's not just it's exciting because it's new and it's shiny. There is a real impact on the human uh, when you implement new technology. So you need to understand that from soup to nuts before you get to put anything in place at your organization. I'd like to stay a little bit more on technology, Mike. And I know you're super passionate about technology. Yes, both Chris and I are as well. I work for large organizations, very large organizations that their tech stack looks like the Apple Store. When you go and you get access to what's available for technology, it literally looks like an app store. I never counted, but for sure, like 70, 80, 100 different like pieces of technology that are available. For some of us, they're just available right as tools, which I think is great, right? It's amazing. But then for some positions, you know, there are certain pieces of tech that are mandatory. And I heard something that really struck me in a profound way. I heard this at Proptech back in November. Uh, someone was talking about the leasing agents being required to be proficient in about 50-something you know, pieces of tech. And then somebody else replied and said, well, you know, you're still good because our number is like 63 or 67. This leads me to the next, I guess, you know, statement. I think we got to a point where we're punishing people with technology. First of all, do you agree that this is like an industry-wide challenge? Do you see the same things? And secondly, for that piece that you see where you agree with me more or less, how do you see us overcoming that challenge? I'll have a very hard time answering the second part of that question. The first part of that question, I would say yes. I would validate that remark in that Mary Gwynn, for example, from Apartment Dynamics, I heard her say that on a podcast. It was Paul Marks' podcast several months ago. She had like 50 or 60 uh, different technologies that leasing consultants or even property managers for that matter had to log into. 
not on a daily basis, but certainly throughout the course of the month. And then I also heard uh, somebody else say that recently. Uh, oh, no, I'll tell you what it was. We were going through an exercise at Radical Residential recently where we were laying everything out on a wall. And we were going through all the pieces of technology that we have in place to serve residents, to serve team members, to serve vendor partners, even to serve investors. And it was north of 60 different technologies or platforms that we had to log into uh, over the course of a given month. So I think that problem is real. I think that problem, at least in the near term, is here to stay. There are some legacy software systems in our space that make it very, very difficult to to create what I call a single stack solution. I'm a best of breed. I love best of breed. I love startups. I love guys who are out solving problems in garages who are trying to introduce that stuff into our space. And I want those people to thrive. But there are some legacy technologies in our space uh, for all the right reasons. If you think about it from a business perspective, that make it very hard to do business, to collect data, to extrapolate data out of systems, put that data to use. Um, and I think until we solve that problem, um, until we come together as a industry, because I think it's going to be solved on the industry and ownership side, we're just going to have to potentially live with this overabundance of technology and, and the systems that we have to use and the, the systems that our teams have to use. I wish I had a better answer, but I'm, I'm just not... Uh, super bullish and optimistic that we're going to solve that in the near term. I do love that you're a realist and uh, you're honest about what you know and what you don't know. It's funny because you have the blog and you put out videos and content. And I, it was funny because I was like telling you how, you know, I think recently I was telling you, I said, your, your content is so great. Like I was catching up on some of the daily blogs you do. And I think it's incredible. And it, you, know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's the multifamily collective. And I, you may have different brands. I, did, I just learned that you had a blog. I didn't know you were actually writing it too every day. So what I love is these little snippets of what you're talking about here around, you know, not being able to solve everything, but taking it one day at a time to just take action, whether it's operators, investors, and, and then even, like you said, supplier partners, uh, because everyone has something to contribute to the conversation. Tell us a little more about like how you started getting into the blog, how you got into writing, and, and tell us like what, what keeps you going. Because I think you've been doing this now for several years. I'm in my 17th year, coming up on my 18th year of creating content. I, I was actually writing blogs back when that sounded like you were clearing your throats, not a, an article on the internet. <laughs> but uh, I started blogging back in 2006, seven. My first blog was Mike Brewer on stuff and things that gave way to Apartment Hacker and that gave way to what we know today is, is the Multifamily Collective. So we have some 2,000, over 2,000 articles that we put out about the multifamily uh, industry and multifamily space. And then uh, the blog started in 2016. As of tomorrow, tomorrow will be my eighth anniversary of uh, creating blog, a blog rather content. And that started out really is uh, a way for me to get comfortable behind a camera. I, I knew at that point in my career that I wanted to grow into higher levels of responsibility. And I knew that with higher levels of responsibility, public speaking was a real thing. Uh, you would have to feel comfortable getting up in front of people and speaking. For those of you who don't know me, I'm very much an introvert, very shy, don't like super big social situations and circumstances, but I knew I needed to do that. So I started the vlog in an effort to get really comfortable behind the camera, thinking that someday that would get me really comfortable in front of an audience. And that's what it did. It really wasn't built to try to provide any value or, or any uh, kind of guidance or counsel to the industry. It was really my effort to build a skill called public speaking. Um, and that's, uh, that's how I got to where I am today. So now we have some almost 2,000 videos that we have put out over the course of the last eight years. And then uh, that married up with the, uh, the writing that I've done over the last 17 years. I can tell you, Mike, that no matter how what your intentions were, but you've been an inspiration for so many of us. Me included. And 
always look up to you. Up to this day, I still am looking up to you as a, you know, not just as a professional, as an accomplished individual, but also as someone that found value in this way of communicating, you know, the blog type, you know, the blog, and also content, video and written content in general speaking. This brings me to the next question. Multifamily Media Network, it's a new project of yours. You're driving this project. So I want you to share with us what started like the idea of this project, Multifamily Media Network, and what has been evolving towards and what should we expect from it. In a near future. Thank you for, for bringing that up as a topic today. I, today was our, our launch day, and I know we were talking pre-recording here or pre-live stream, and uh, you said something that was very profound to me and very meaningful in that this is not a competition. Um, you could argue that we put something out like this into the world, and we're just competing with all the other podcasters and other media offerings from companies, from individuals, etc. But uh, I, I agree with you. It is not a competition, and it really is an effort. Multifamily Media Network is an effort to curate and bring voices to the multifamily space from people who don't necessarily they wanted to do a podcast, but they didn't necessarily want to do all the work that is behind the scenes uh, germane to producing a podcast. So, what Multifamily Media Network is is an opportunity for people to come set up a podcast, really just show up and do the recording and then give the video and the content to, to us at the media network and let us do all the production on the backside and all the distribution uh, through the 85,000 email subscribers that we have, through the social networks that we have um, collectively and independently. So we're handling basically the branding of all the podcasters and all the uh, production and distribution for uh, their efforts and the creation. What we have to look forward to is really in the early innings, we're just going to really support these individuals. Uh, we're going to invite sponsors in, none unlike uh, you're, you're doing, uh, to put their uh, sponsorships against that content that we're creating. Uh, hopefully bring uh, more awareness uh, to those supplier partners that are trying to serve our industry, but uh, certainly bring some valuable educational content through the podcasters and the creators uh, that we've been able to curate. I imagine that it will evolve. I have a very grand vision. I don't necessarily want to share the grand vision right now because it's still coming to be in my head. But when it does come to be, uh, certainly there will be more to look out for. Yeah, I'm excited to, to see this. And I'm excited to see more opportunities for people to share uh, their, their opinions and especially partnering with you. They're going to be successful. You know, something on this topic uh, around leadership. Right, you write, you talk a lot about leadership, and even share a lot of examples. So, if you could share today, maybe some of the qualities that you think are some of the top qualities that effective leaders need to demonstrate, especially in multifamily. Some things I've heard you speak about, you know, being intentional. I'm sure you've worked with that, having difficult conversations, and even you talk about, you know, saying no so you can say yes to the right things. But can you share like some of the things that you think leaders have to? Uh, to work on for me and first and foremost it's it's be of good character right and what do i mean by that be trustworthy have integrity keep your side of the street clean but do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it fundamentally just be a kind person leaders sometimes um, especially the youth in our worlds show up and they think leadership is position they think I need to be the vice president of this organization. I need to be the president of this organization tomorrow. But they don't 
understand that it really is uh, time and reps and showing up and being present and doing all those things that I just described and doing it with consistency, a great level of consistency. A lot of times people get emotionally loaded in circumstances or in situations and their true self comes out. I think that people who are able to emotionally regulate themselves with emotional intelligence uh, married together with some hard skills are the people who will be the true leaders in our industry, in industries across this great country. But really, it is showing up on a consistent basis with a high level of character. That's what I'd probably boil it down to. I, uh, I do want to switch a little bit uh, towards multifamily operations. Given the current economic environment, what are the main challenges to overcome? And where do you see opportunities for multifamily operators? I know that we could talk about this alone for hours, probably, but we only have, you know, only have the limited time. So I'm going to leave it up to you to pick and choose what's kind of the essence of what you see happening and what you see that will happen in the near future. I don't think that I have any novel thoughts. The way I see it is that the industry, like many industries across the country, are going through a great squeeze. Obviously, interest rates are not our friend. Uh, taxes are not our friend. Insurance costs are not our friend. All these rising costs that are really uncontrollables are not the friends of the industry at the current moment. And what that has done, the byproduct of that, is really that every single GL line item on the cost side of the equation, because rents are not growing at 20 and 30% quotes like they were uh, several years ago, but it's put a real squeeze on every GL on the cost side of the equation. I, I think of marketing, for example. I think we were running some pretty good per unit costs on the marketing side um, because you could frankly afford to spend big money to draw big attention to yourself to, to these apartments at big rates. But when everything flipped, what you were spending on a per unit basis was cut in half, uh, if not more. And you were asked to do more with that less. <laughs> and I think that that is true in most GLI items today. So I think it really highlights whether you label it efficiencies or centralization in the industry, it has really brought that to the forefront. Uh, what is really exciting for me is that I think on the downside of every single adversity that ever happens in one's life or in one's industry, that's where real innovation, that's where real creativity and experimentation comes to be. And that's where real, incredibly creative solutions are born. You guys are sitting in an innovation uh, factory right now. I'll call it that for lack of knowing exactly what it's called. But my imagination tells me that there are a bunch of incredibly smart people running around that building that you're in right now, dreaming up some incredible solutions based on the constraints of what is going on in the marketplace today, not only in multifamily, but in other industries. So I, I'm excited about the future as a, as it relates to this current climate. Perfect timing uh, to, to share that because, yeah, you know, we're going to be meeting up today with some awesome people in the, in the industry, some people flying down to New York and other cities. But yeah, I love that around as you were talking about, you know, kind of intertwining leadership and innovation. And this building, you know, you talked about being kind. This building, well, 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 you know, it's called Atlanta Tech Village. And it was built with the premise of technology companies, right? Having a place that people could come together uh, I think there's like a thousand startups here. Uh, Adrian and I is a great Adrian and I get to be in the same room. We're literally looking at each other a couple feet away from each other. There's a thousand people building uh, remotely in person. There, there's companies and they just, this will be a future podcast, Mike, but they just bought 53 buildings and six parking lots downtown. Uh, they're redeveloping South downtown over a 40 year vision. Well, they have built to your point. They have four rules in this building, right? Like high, be kind, 
is their first rule. It's in the actual password of the internet. Uh, it's <laughs> right? So kindness, I love, I love that. And Jennifer Carter's talking about kindness in the comments here. But I love that about you because you have to start with that. You have to start with kindness. You have to start with being respectful of others. And that is a true rule of this building and of what they're building downtown and inclusivity, right? They want to make sure that all Atlantans can have a voice in this new project. So could you share maybe a story around, you know, so many people say they have a great culture. Adrian did a poll, and I think like 50% of the respondents to that poll around culture said the feeling they have doesn't align with what's posted on their website. So I wanted to get your thoughts around that. You, you know, if you want to tie in like the thoughts around culture, but also innovation, like how do you get people to feel comfortable with making mistakes but at the same time, you know, not making anyone feel bad, right? So if you want to tie that up, how do you like? It's sad to think that the way you feel and the way your organization operates doesn't align. And that's sad because you spend more time in that environment than you do at home. And it really is incumbent upon businesses and organizations to set in place uh, an incredible atmosphere for people to come and thrive as human beings, first and foremost. And that doesn't mean that you hang your problems on a coat hanger and then cross the threshold and come into my business and operate like, you know, like you don't have problems. <laughs> it means you bring your whole self into the business and we support you in any way, shape, or form that we can. Now, understanding that we need a business outcome, culture really is a set of processes and procedures and disciplines and routines that we do consistently over time. One would argue it's the field day that we do, the foosballs table that we set up, and all these other things that we do, which are important to build camaraderie and teamwork and those things. But the culture really is the disciplines that are set in place. And I think I would encap this remark by saying that I believe that really successful organizations as it relates to, relates to culture have really good disciplines about meetings. Now, before you say, I hate meetings, we do too many meetings, I would say this. If you set up a good discipline of a daily huddle, a weekly meeting, a monthly meeting, a quarterly meeting, and an annual planning meeting, and you do that with very tight agendas, with very tight agenda items, you're doing reps that are building all of those systems and disciplines and routines in your organization. And the expression of that or the outcome of that are good business benefits, right? If you measure it by KPIs, you measure it with Swift Bunny, measure it with other things in the industry, companies that are really successful at culture are the ones that are really disciplined and consistent about their meetings. And those meetings are the things that make your culture, in this guy's opinion. Before going to the next question, Mike, uh, I do want to acknowledge all of you in the audience, say hi to all of you. Uh, drop a comment in the box, in the comment box. Uh, ask Mike a question. We're keeping an eye on your comments. And we'd like to hear from you, right? We want to ask Mike questions coming from you. And obviously, thank you for taking an hour of your time today to be here with Chris, myself, and Mike, uh, and just hang out with us for an hour. How important is culture here, right? Chris just mentioned company culture versus real culture, or I guess the perception of culture. Young generation, I want to ask about the young generation aspiring leaders. People that are looking up to individuals very accomplished like you, Mike. They want to become like you. They want to become Mike one day. What are some pieces of advice that you know you want to share with them? I'll share a piece of advice that was shared with me a very long bit of time ago. And that was go where the problem... In fact, I'm going to share this book cover. <laughs> Fall in love with the problem, not the solution. 
and there's the author. The reason I share that is that if, if you really aspire to lead well in the industry, go find the problems. Go find the problems in your organization. Go find the problems in the industry. Put pure definition to it. Make sure you're solving real problems that benefit the, the business or benefit the industry. Don't just chase the problem because it seems interesting and sexy. Go find a real problem. Put pure definition to it and then go about solving that and do that consistently. And here's what will happen. People will start to recognize you as the solution. You as an individual, as a human, as the solution to any problem that might exist in their business or any problem that might exist in the industry. And all of a sudden, your phone starts ringing, your cell phone, or your DMs start blowing up and because you're the go-to person. So my piece of advice, the one and only that I'll give, is go chase the problems and become the problem solver. And that will accelerate your career like no other thing that you can do. That hits home for me, Mike, because that was me 10, 12 years ago, 14 years ago. We've got the best. We do this. We're X. Don't listen to everything else, right? And then when I, you know, later in life, our products evolved, right? And I, we had Steve Halsey on here two episodes ago. And Steve created a new product because he saw a new... He's like, you're not solving one of our problems. And we actually started building new products. Today, that company, Lux, are no longer there. But they keep solving other problems into the future in totally different sectors. And I think, you know, with my investor hat on, you really hit home because that's what I've really focused on is not what you built, but what have you discovered around the problem and then what problems are you going to solve in the future? So definitely why we got to go down the rabbit hole of that, you know, now that I'm on the investing side. But I would love to hear your thoughts. You and Adrian have built incredible followings. You've got daily listeners. How do you see, you know, the, the new media, the new communication platforms evolving, especially as it hits multifamily, right? And, and multifamily being such a large space. I'm kind of curious to hear like, you know, as you're contributing so much to other people and maybe even oftentimes some of your knowledge you're giving giving to others, um, where, where do you see media and communication moving in our industry? We're in the very early innings, right? Some of this technology has existed for a very long time, but I think the masses are starting to adopt it. Um, you, you see it by the proliferation of podcasts that have come into the, <laughs> into the space as of late. But I still think we're in the very early innings of, of media evolving. Let's use LinkedIn as an example. LinkedIn has really been a place where business people go, business leaders go, to communicate, to network. Um, really, it's kind of the online version of standing in a room and networking with people. At least that's the way I see it. And you're able to share some content into the, into the stream. LinkedIn has become a little bit noisy as of late. It's morphing into something that looks more... I'm not going to go so far as to say like a Facebook or even an Instagram, but it's certainly evolved into something that is more akin to that than what it used to be. And so I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about what LinkedIn ultimately becomes. I would be an advocate for them governing in some way. Don't ask me what that means. I just think that there needs to be some sort of governing mechanism as it relates to the content that's put out there. I don't know what the right answer is as it relates to putting content into the world and, and how that sort of speaks to your question. I think that when you democratize the ability to put content into the world, whether it be video or written or otherwise, you have this sort of messy middle that happens. And at some point, that messy middle gives way to what that thing will become. And I think we're probably somewhere in here as it relates to the messy middle. And we're going to get here, but it's probably two to four years away. I'm purely guessing uh, before we see what would be uh, what we 
what, what I consider a real valuable piece of uh, media as it relates to, to multifamily. It's a very interesting thought, Mike, and uh, I'd like to follow up a little bit with a question here. The way I understand uh, the algorithms working, all the platforms really, because you know they're trying to get you to stay as much as possible on their platform, is that the type of content that you're consuming, they're giving you more of, in a way, to me, uh, the way I explain this to myself, it works like a pre-market. What the public wants, we need to produce more of, in a way, right? We as content creators, we don't have to, but if there's a certain demand out there on the market that's going to be met somehow. I guess, first of all, I'm going to ask you if you agree with this assessment. I like to know if you feel the same way. And, and secondly, if you're in agreement, the second question will be, how would that mesh well with, I guess, with some oversight or with some sort of a LinkedIn uh, watchdog or, you know, whatever, that it's moderating content in a way where like it's, like pulling content out of the platform or doesn't give you the reach that you could reach by the simple, you know, supply and demand rules applying to it. Let's compare and contrast you and me, for example. And this is not to put either one of us on the spot, but we have very different strategies as it relates to putting content into the world. I think you, last I read, you were posting three times plus or minus per day on LinkedIn. You might see me post every once in a while, but my strategy is I'm depositing my content in YouTube and other places. And my strategy or my hope, my desire, I know hope is not a strategy, but is that other people will read the content or listen to the content, review the content in those other platforms, and then they share that out into the world. I'm not doing that. They are. The big punchline for me is that they saw value in it so much so that they shared it into the LinkedIn environment. Now, every now and then, I post into the LinkedIn environment and really under the premise of exposing others, right? Or edifying others or highlighting others, not highlighting Mike Brewer. Now that doesn't mean Mike Brewer's strategy is the right one. To speak to your point about the algorithm, I think you and, and Tony Sousa and others put a lot of content out there uh, germane to yourself, which is another good strategy. Um, it's not any better or worse, it's just different. I agree that you've got to produce content. You've got to put it out into the world. If you want to draw attention to yourself, you need to do that in some way in those distribution networks. Um, but I think you just have to pick a strategy and you have to be consistent about it and be true to it. And hopefully you get the desired outcome that you're after. Is that a type of good attention and bad attention? Or is it just simply attention? What's your take on attention? Like, I'll give you, this is not my novel thought. I heard somebody say that all attention is, is good attention because people are talking about you. So if it's controversial or not, it's, it's, it's good because you're, you're in the punchline, so to speak. I don't necessarily subscribe to that idea that, that all attention is good attention. You know, there are a lot of celebrities that step in it from time to time that get exposed in ways that are, cringeworthy. And one might argue that their publicist created or manufactured the circumstances to get their name in the headlines a little more. I go back to character when I think about that. And I think you got to be really careful. My mom taught me that my reputation is everything. My word is gold, right? A long time ago. And I haven't lived 100% true to that my entire life, but I do believe it. And I think you got to show up and try to be a beneficial presence for yourself and for other people. I was told the same thing, like the, the highest currency in the world my grandfather taught me was reputation, right? Um, mm-hmm. It takes years and a lifetime to build and one incident or one moment in your life that can, that can pull it down. As you said, you know, as we're talking about innovation, you get to meet so many people 
uh, operators, investors, but you're also meeting supplier partners and people building, you know, founders building great stuff. And I love to meet them too. It keeps me not only excited, motivated about the future, but uh, we can help support these people that build things we want to see. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. There are some, some exciting emerging technology you're seeing um, that are going to have a big impact and maybe, or some spaces that you're really excited about, whether it's AI, maybe hardware, or some other things that you're seeing operational. AI is certainly going to make an impact in the multifamily space. It's, it's going to make an impact across our, our industry and across our world. I put out a post recently uh, where I talked about, I've been talking about this, let's say, for four to six years, literally saying that we need to upskill and reskill because I read an article. I was literally sitting in a Starbucks in St. Louis, Missouri, six or seven years ago, reading about how AI was going to impact the world and take away jobs. And the, the premise of the article was upskill and reskill. And so the post I made recently was, look, now is the time. Like really back then was the time, but now is the time that you really do have to think about upskilling and reskilling yourself as it relates to AI because AI does have the ability to really disappear all the rote and routine work that we know to be in the multifamily space today. Bill Gates had a vision to put a computer on every single desk, uh, whether you're in a business environment or otherwise, so that he could put a software on it, right, and sell it into the world. I really have a grand vision to take away all computers off desks um, so that we can get back to seeing each other and do business more relationally than sort of behind a screen or transactionally. Now that's utopian. I, I know that. But I think AI gives us the ability to disappear a lot of that stuff so that you could actually live in an environment like that. Because all of that stuff, my co-pilot, co uh, AI co-pilot, is even talking to your AI co-pilot, based on the data that we've been feeding into these social networks for the last 15 to 20 years, plus minus, I see in the next, who knows, this is lick my finger and wave it in the air kind of thinking, but in the next three to five years, we really will see an environment where AI has taken away nearly all of the routine work in our businesses today. It's going to impact the corporate environment much more so than it's going to impact the site level in the multifamily industry. So those corporate level jobs that people aspire to get to are the ones that are most exposed. I, I think about asset management, I think about accounting, I think about all the things that are related to to running property management from a, a global perspective or a corporate perspective being the ones that are most at risk for AI in the coming years. I would like to take a question from the audience. And the question comes from Julio Angel. Julio is asking what happens when you find the problems and provide solutions, but the organization, your employer, does not want to recognize the flaws in the business. I would try to get my direct supervisor to become an advocate for me in selling this, whatever solution this is, right? And if they're not, I would simply say to them, hey, as a, out of courtesy, I want to let you know that I'd like to go to your you know, supervisor to pitch my idea. Um, I want you to be in support of that. But if you're not, I'm going to do that. I'm just giving you a heads up that I'm doing it. And then go do that. And if that person is adverse to your idea, try the next level. If you've exhausted that entire uh, hierarchy of decision makers, my suggestion would be go find an organization that is more open to, more open-minded as it relates to solutions and open-minded to team members, no matter your rank in the organization, uh, bringing ideas to the forefront. Some of the best ideas in the multifamily space come from site-level team members that are just trying to solve problems. So I would go find, uh, I'd go find an organization that supports it, but first I would try to go up the hierarchy with that strategy I just uh, suggested. You said tomorrow is your eighth anniversary of producing and putting out content. 
You said, I think, over 2,000 videos on different platforms. I think you're at over 1,600 straight days of publishing. Is that right? 1,600 days straight? I think it's actually... So whatever, 8 times 365, I rarely miss a day. So you might be right. I don't know the answer to that question, but it probably is in the thousands. (laughs) And the the episode, your little two-minute snippets. Oh, yeah. In the early innings, I was not numbering episodes. Ah. So at some point, I started numbering episodes. (laughs) Well, I call you, and when I was at On Deck, uh, I worked for someone named Eric Farnberg, who was, was a great, you know, he's big in, in, uh, in investing, and he, he, he always talked about shipping, you know, consistent shipping. So I'm a, what, you, what we would call you is a consistent shipper. When you're holding yourself accountable, you're, you're consistent, consistently doing the same thing. You've got your process, and it's helped me. Uh, you know, so, so someone I know we talked about earlier, you're helping me actually to do the same thing. Hold, you hold me accountable. Um, getting me to, you know, publish my ideas to get me to spend more time, put on my calendar to write, um, to put my thesis out and then to get feedback on my thesis. So I'm kind of curious. I want to hear a little deeper around how do you stay accountable to yourself? What are the things you're doing, um, that you can make sure with the audience of, of whether it's fitness, whether it's health, um, achieving your goals when you miss your goals? Are there some specific things you could share there around accountability? Um, you know, that, that, that you're willing to open up about. So I have uh, Asperger's, high, high spectrum, uh, right? So the superpower is that when you have that, you become very focused and very disciplined in everything that you do. So I have that advantage going into my, into my day uh, or into my life, so to speak. Um, I would say this, I have a five, I get up at five o'clock every single morning and I have a very disciplined regimen that happens between five and seven o'clock that I call prime time or priming the pump. If you've ever been around a farm yard, you, you see these uh, spigots that have this pump on the top and you have to pump the, the thing to get the water to come out of the spigot. Um, that's priming the pump. So that's where that I'm using that as an analogy. So between five and seven, I'm priming the pump. I get up, I read over here. You would see that I have uh, that are six books that are daily readers. Uh, to include my own book, I've been reading my own book, but I read those. I read a devotional, biblical devotional. I also read out of the Bible. Um, I read the Bible every year, you know, a day at a time throughout the year. I run. Uh, I'm running a marathon on Sunday, uh, but I run every, at least every other day. I used to run every day, but uh, getting old. But exercise in the nutrition certainly very important to me. Sleep is super important. Eight hours, non-negotiable. Otherwise, I feel like I've been out uh, on the town for the night. So I would say sleep, nutrition, um, definitely feeding your mind with lots of good stuff. Uh, Those are really the keys to to getting prepped and coming into a day. I'd like to take another question out from the audience. AJ is asking you, this is like, his question is pretty specific, right? His background is in Maynask. He's a uh, Maynask professional or technician. You know, he he wants to know from an executive standpoint, right? What kind of soft skills do you see as most valuable and important for maintenance and service technicians looking to grow in rank in an industry? Yeah, the first one is, we've said it several times today, is learn. Uh, if, you, if you're not a kind person, learn how to be a kind person. I think you're, you really are, in my mind, the front lines of uh, retention, if you will, in the multi-family space. Customer service, first and foremost. And you have to show up with a smile on your face. You have to show up in circumstances where people are emotionally loaded because whatever it is is not working for them. And it's not you. It's that thing that's causing them to be emotionally loaded. 
But your ability to stand in a moment like that and be present and de-escalate a circumstance and win a fan, that is probably the most important thing that you can you can develop in your life. And I would encourage you to read everything that Dan Goldman has ever written or anything you get your hands on as it relates to emotional intelligence, because that's really where that's the foundation. And if you do the reps in that world of emotional intelligence, that skill will serve you not not just in movements, it'll serve you in life. It'll serve you in your home life or in your business life. Well, it's interesting because uh, earlier when you talk about the utopian world, right? Or removing a laptop, you know, I think you're you're great and real person too. People realize how tall you really are. Can you slam dunk, by the way, in basketball? I could. You got could dunk when I was in college. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So you know, little little nuggets. Uh, that we would otherwise know. So obviously in our industry, you know, you talked about centralization. Obviously that comes hand in hand with having collaborative tools. It comes hand in hand with uh, remote work. You know, obviously COVID changed that. What are your thoughts around remote work? Whether it's on-site, regional teams, and then also remote work as in what it looks like for multifamily at the corporate level. You know, what are your, what are your thoughts? And maybe because you've probably seen a lot of it. Before it was called remote work, I think it was called hoteling. And I started hoteling nine years ago. At first, I thought it was really cool. You know, I could go and sit in environments that I felt inspired by. Because most of the time, there are times where a corporate environment either gets so noisy and overwhelming that you can't get a lot of real focus work done, or it becomes so much like a library that it seems like, are people alive here or not alive? (laughs) Uh, So it was neat to be able to go sit in environments where you could feel inspired to do work. But then over time, and especially as it relates to COVID, I started to feel really isolated and not as productive as I thought I would in a remote environment. And so I think the real answer, and this is, again, not novel thoughts, but I think the hybrid version of work is probably the sweet spot. I think some bit of time at home or in another environment where you're not distracted and you get to do real work, deep work uh, is important. But I also think that being together in an environment where you can do mindshare, brainstorming, whatever you want to call it, or water cooler talk or hallway talk, those things are very important um, as it relates to, to keeping your culture together. Uh, and keeping idea flow going. So I'm probably an advocate for a hybrid model of work. And that, that goes from site level all the way up in this industry. I think there's some version of, of hybrid that you can put together at every level in organizations. Like another huge topic in an industry, right, that could take six hours easily to 12 to debate. We talk about centralization. To Mike Brewer, is centralization a real thing in an industry? Is it just a buzzword or is it just somewhere in between these two? So I worked at Equity Residential 15 plus years ago, and we were doing centralization at that time. The thing that was different about then versus now is the technology was not caught up. You would take an assistant manager and give them oversight of three or four properties. They might still sit at a property, but they'd be responsible for two or three and call that centralization. Today, the technology is really caught up. We've got our very sophisticated uh, CRM systems um, that are being developed out there. There's some really great ones. Um, allows leasing consultants to sell from a distance. The technology for access control has really caught up so that people can do DIY showing or self-showing. I believe that centralization or efficiency or whatever you want to call it is on the precipice of really changing our industry. And I think it's changing our industry from a system standpoint, but where I really think it's changing our industry is from a business hierarchy standpoint. So I think uh, the real disruption that is going to happen as a result of centralization is our traditional 
hierarchies there, you know, presidency, your COO, presidents, and all this thing that you have put in place today is going to collapse. It's going to become flatter than ever because you're going to have the ability to automate, centralize, outsource, uh, or even eliminate complete functions of business so that you can operate with far fewer people than you have in the past. That's where the real disruption is going to happen. We haven't seen it yet, but it's going to happen. That's definitely something uh, I've heard from some of the work you know, work at Google and Facebook is the removal of some of the managers there uh, in some of the announcements. Um, definitely Gumroad uh, is a good example. He's written a lot about making his team, as you said, more centralized, more remote, and less in-between team members all them accountable. Is there a really memorable experience or uh, maybe even a lesson learned, you may even call it a mistake, um, something back in years ago where maybe you, uh, you'd be willing to share with people, you know, how maybe it shaped you in the multifamily space. I believe I had just been promoted into a property manager position and I was, my district manager told me that my regional manager was coming to town and it was my first experience with having a regional come to town. And so I was very overly excited by that idea. And I got our team together and I made a list of, let's, let's say for sake of conversation, 30 things we were going to accomplish. And I think this was a Monday. She was coming on Thursday. 30 things we're going to accomplish before she actually shows up on the property. We're just going to blow her away, right? One of those projects included ripping out the floor in our laundry room and laying down a new floor so that when she came, she would be blown away by the fact that it looked brand new. Thursday arrives. We may have accomplished five or six of the things on my list of 30 things to do because they weren't small projects. They were all very big projects. So when she gets to town, she walks. She's not excited. Um, she didn't walk away with the feeling that I wanted her to have. And my district manager wrote me a, a long letter and it led by saying, all the good intentions in the world are worth nothing unless followed through. And I will never, ever, ever forget that in terms of level setting yourself. You always want to impress. Certainly so. But always do that with realism in mind. In, <laughs> anytime you're planning something, just know your intention is always far beyond your capabilities, your realistic capabilities. Um, and so just level set yourself before you go about accomplishing big lists of things um, to impress other people. <laughs> Mike, the journey to the top could feel very lonely at times. That has been at least my experience. Did Mike Brewer experience something like this? And how did Mike Brewer deal with the situation? It is lonely at the top is a very real thing. I think the important thing to put in place for yourself is mentors or Chris, I like your word, accountability buddy, or other people that are outside of your organization that can hold you accountable or can be your sounding board or you know, great organizations like YPO or, or other kind of collaborative type environments that you can join up and be a part of. You have to find people. When you're at the top in an organization, there are many filters that are put in place that keep information from you or skew information that is coming to you. No matter what kind of environment you have, you could have the greatest culture in the world, but that still happens that it gets filtered. You need to have people outside of your organization that act like, I like to refer to it as sandpaper, that keep that are always sanding your edges and keeping you sharp as it relates to running an organization. So it is lonely, but you've got to be intentional about putting mechanisms in place to, to make it not so. Borrow that sandpaper sharpening example. Um, as my son puts it, he uses the uh, pencil sharpener a lot. He's, a, he's an artist. As you talk about these people who, uh, who sharpen you and don't detract from you, they help build you up, they make you smarter, 
help you through your career. They pull up tears for you. Who are some people, whether it's in the industry or maybe even outside the industry, who made a positive impact on your career or maybe were mentors to you? I hesitate to answer that question because I will inevitably leave somebody off of the list, but I have a great deal of admiration for Lisa Trezine. I just think she is incredibly intellectual, does her homework, and really offers an incredible amount of insight and has always sharpened my saw along the way. I met her in 1996 in a hotel in Las Vegas in the, like the gift shop. She was buying Michael Jordan magazines for her husband. She has been incredible in my life along the way. Certainly, uh, there's a, somebody named Jim and Jackie Wiseman, her husband and wife team, who really took me on in the early innings. Jackie was the one that uh, was the one I was trying to impress with the uh, floor that we ripped out of the laundry room. Uh, I think they're still in the industry down in Austin, Texas. I think outside of the industry, there have, she was coaches come to mind. I played division one college basketball at Texas Tech University. And certainly the coaches that I uh, experienced along the way, both head coaches and certainly support team uh, or support coaches uh, were incredible. My high school basketball coach, a lot, of, there are just a lot of people I could name and I, hesitate to keep going because I'll, I'll inevitably leave somebody out. Mike, uh, as we're approaching the, the end of this amazing conversation, uh, it's been great for uh, Chris and I both. Hopefully it was great for you too. I think I wanted to ask a question that you know many in the audience and even those that you know are not present you know would like to hear an answer from you. What's next for Mike Brewer? You know, it's interesting. I pivoted away from Racket Residential recently and I I'm very oddly at peace about the decision to step away from that organization. Uh, not because it's a bad organization, they're incredible people. It's an incredible organization, incredible people. I think the future for our residential is, is off the charts. I'm oddly at peace. I think that I am taking some time to kind of figure out what I want to do when I grow up, so to speak. I think there are some interesting opportunities from some incredible people in this industry that have been put in front of me. And I am certainly looking at each and every one of them as led by, I'm, I'm a believer in God, and I think that God has a plan for my life, and I'm just really listening to that, listening to Him and His guidance right now to figure out what is next. Um, so I don't know the answer to your question, but I uh, will certainly let everybody know uh, when it comes to me. We appreciate you being here with us today. Very genuine conversation coming from the heart. I could feel that. You always, you know, you've always been this type of person, whether I met you in person or, you know, just virtually. Thank you so much for being here with us, for taking an hour. We're very fortunate to have you with us today. We're very fortunate to have you with us as an industry. And uh, so many of us are looking up to you. Thank you again for being here with us. We hope to get you back here soon, even though now we're competing, but we're not competing. <laughs> it's was <laughs> for me. It's got to be a friendly conversation. I love to collaborate more with you. I love to uh, to get uh, more of your thoughts right here for, for us, for all of us. You're an amazing inspiration for us. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say that. And I, I receive it. And, uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys inviting me to, uh, to the show today. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your nuggets, Mike. And, and can't wait to hear how your marathon goes. Is it is it next week? This, this coming Sunday? This coming Sunday in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Well, I, I want to hear any tips and tricks on that because uh, I'm, I'm training for a half marathon with my sister. So any tips and tricks you can share after that, uh, please share. I absolutely will. Thank you very much. Everybody, uh, we're not forgetting you. For those of you in the audience that spend the hour with us, thank you so much for joining, for hanging out with us. You know, we're doing this for you. This is for you, for you only. Uh, and we also want to thank our sponsors from Apartment Snapshot and from our GPS. So roof leak repairs. Uh, we hope to see you back here next Thursday. 
we're going to have Melissa White as a guest. She is the current chair of the Atlanta Apartment Association. So we're extremely excited to welcoming her to the multifamily hangout. Have an amazing afternoon. 